0: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway.
2: A block of wood is currently nine points clear of the Conservative Prime Minister Boris Johnson, despite him having an 80-seat majority in the House of Commons, though he may not have 80-seat majority After Thursday, when there is a very real live possibility of a rock solid conservative seat falling to the Liberal Democrats, not least because parties to the right of the conservatives are going to take thousands of conservative votes because, frankly, more and more people have concluded that whatever else he is, Boris Johnson is not, in fact, a conservative. He's a bounder, he's a cad, he's a mountbank, He should have been horsewhipped before he even got into public life. Should have been horsewhipped out of it by many an angry father, father-in-law, cuckolded husband, by people that trusted him and found their trust misplaced, betrayed. Any number of people told us, did tell us, that Boris Johnson was a thoroughly disreputable cove and was only conservative as long as it fitted him and it no longer seems to fit him. The question of open borders on the Channel coasts, the question of repeated lockdowns and restrictions, uh, the stealth taxing of us through green taxes, since Boris Johnson slipped into a polar bear suit up in Glasgow at COP26, the betrayal of the North over HS2, the whole stamp of Boris Johnson's conservative government is actually of a Blairite liberal. That's why I've been saying to you throughout all of this two years Those idiots, halfwits, who kept describing Boris Johnson's government stuffed to the gills with gays and ethnic minorities, pursuing the fads of greenery, pursuing every fad of COVID-19, people said, it was the most right-wing Tory government we've ever had. Even called them fascists. They're not even conservatives. Never mind fascists. If you think that is fascist, you need to study more. If you think that's a right-wing government that we have at Westminster, you obviously are too young to remember Margaret Thatcher, Norman Tebbit in their boots kicking the working people of this country all over the shop. But the majority of Conservative MPs are not like that. Or at least they're not like that if they think it's going to cost them their seats and they're going to discover on Thursday in North Shropshire that the Conservative voters don't really like it very much. They don't like the fact that the boats keep arriving on the beach. They don't share the perspective of people like me. That however bad that is, deplorable that is, avoidable that is, it's still a trickle compared to the numbers of migrants, asylum seekers, call them what you will, that are arriving in France, in Greece, in Germany. A trickle compared to the numbers that are arriving in Turkey, in Pakistan, in Iran. The Conservative voting base doesn't see it that way. They see boatloads of young fighting-age men arriving on the Channel coasts and being hustled away in a taxi to a three- or even four-star hotel, which is no longer bookable by the ordinary holidaymaker or traveller in Britain. They see an endless, apparently, with a 64% success rate in the claims for asylum, a bill that will run forever. That's not what they voted for when they voted for Brexit. The Conservative voting base does not like all this greenery, doesn't want to scrap its boiler, doesn't want to have to buy an electric car by 2030, only eight years from now, doesn't want to pay increased taxes to wrap ourselves in the green tinsel of extinction rebellion, doesn't like the fact that the Metropolitan Police stands by while people nail themselves to the motorways and bring everything to a halt. The Conservative voting base didn't vote for that, or at least didn't think that that's what they were voting for. And perhaps most troublingly, this country appears, and we'll know at 8 o'clock, to be headed back to where we were last year at this time, at least for the most of us isolated, unable to see our elderly parents, unable to visit people in hospital, unable to bury people in funerals, unable to go to the pub, to the restaurant, to the club, to the football stadium, we may well be on the verge of a back to the future series of measures right after Christmas because... Whatever else the government with its follow the science mantra is doing, it's not getting on top of what they say, and I'll come to that, is a clear and present danger to the National Health Service, to our public health, and even to the lives of very significant numbers of us. The problem is uh, they don't act as they speak which means one of two things. Either that what they speak is untrue and that they are deliberately hyping a danger which doesn't exist if it did exist. Why are they frolicking in Christmas parties in Downing Street when the rest of us were cowering behind the sofa, afraid even to kiss our elderly mothers? Well, they were kissing each other under the mistletoe, so you can't have it both ways. Either what they were saying wasn't true, or we've actually got certifiable maniacs running the country, knowing the risks, but locking themselves in number 10 Downing Street, and laughing about it as memorable footage of Austin Allegra showed in the course of this past week. You can't have it both ways. Either it is the plague revisiting us and you're crazy or it isn't quite the plague that you've been telling us and that's why you were snogging each other. Even the minister of health was snogging his aide caught on CCTV in the ministry of health. At a time when he was telling the rest of us, we couldn't bury our elderly. We couldn't go to funerals or weddings. We couldn't visit people. He had his tongue down the throat, forgive me, of his parliamentary aide, somebody else's wife at that, I'll add. So, when they tell us that the reason for this new panic Despite all the jobs we've had, I've had three now, but I'm supposed to panic about Omicron. Is that how you say it? Omicron. Omicron, which has killed zero people in the whole world. Zero It was identified in South Africa, and the woman, Dr. Coetzee, that identified it has become hoarse telling us that whilst more transmissible, it is less deadly than the hitherto prevalent Delta version of the coronavirus. So numbers in South Africa of people infected has fallen three days in a row, in the last three days, it's fallen every day, despite a massive increase in the number of people tested. So fewer people are getting it in South Africa, and nobody yet has died of it anywhere in the world. So why are we running to the hills again? Why has Nicola Sturgeon completely devastated again the Scottish hospitality sector, why is Boris Johnson hinting, threatening to do the same here in England? Why? If it's less deadly and more transmissible, then that means it's good news, not bad news. It's not as good news as the whole thing disappearing, but it's better news if a less deadly variant is becoming the prevalent one or will become the prevalent one. But in any case, what about the next variant and the next one and the next one and the next one? How long are we going to live like this with our economy devastated and people going mad? Don't tell me people are not going mad. I'm one of those that has the responsibility, the duty, the misfortune to read the comments on social media that emerge after programs like this. Trust me, there's tens of thousands of unhinged, deranged people out there. I had a woman tell me today that an anagram of Omicron and Delta is more media control They're laughing at us, she said. She really meant it. Even when someone pointed out that mother-in-law is an anagram of Hitler woman, she didn't get the point. Anything can be an anagram of anything, but people have now reached the stage in this country and not just in this country. They don't believe a word the government or the state or its mandated media. Tell it, they don't believe it. More and more of them don't believe it. I walked for two hours or more in London this afternoon in Hyde Park, in Bayswater, in Queensway. Nobody was wearing masks, nobody is following the instructions because they have lost faith, trust in the government, not least because They've all seen the footage of the government making hay while the sun didn't shine for the rest of us. Nobody trusts Big Pharma, which won't release the patents, condemning billions of people in the poorest countries in the world to no vaccination at all unless they can afford it. Nobody believes that Big Pharma is disinterestedly telling us we need to have vaccination after vaccination after vaccination because people just hear the sound of the cash register, and the undreamt of bounties which these pharmaceutical companies are banking. People don't trust the media because the media has become Merely a font of official information. And if you stand against the tide, if you reveal what the state doesn't want you to know, you end up like Julian Assange, stricken, lying on this bitter evening on a hard bed in Belmarsh, found by the British courts are to be quite fit enough to go and face the rigors of 175 years in an American maximum security penitentiary where he will literally never be seen or heard from again. People see that. And journalists like the arrow that flies in the night Sense of themselves. They tow the line. The fourth estate is no estate at all. Its imagined role as a sentinel subjecting official information to the same attention as the dog subjects the lamppost is all history now. Andrew Neal and the Sunday Times revealed the scandal that affected pregnant women all over this country. The thalidomide scandal was the great new thing. You were nobody if you weren't taking thalidomide when you were pregnant. It would banish morning sickness, anxiety, except it produced thousands of severely damaged children. It was punted by the same pharmaceuticals. It was trumpeted by the same kind of media, but at least then we had the insight team at the Sunday Times. Now we don't. Now there is no insight team. Now there is no Sunday Times meaningfully. There is no world in action. There are no journalists that are speaking up against the lies and the distortions and the hypocrisies until they decide that there's a need for a change of the conservative prime minister. That won't mean they'll admit that they were wrong when they ensured the election of Boris Johnson in the first place. The liberals in the Guardian and the Observer, crying their crocodile tears over the premiership of Boris Johnson this day. Nobody did more to ensure Boris Johnson became Prime Minister than you, you lying hypocrites. But they have decided that Boris Johnson is no longer wanted on voyage. And for them, it's a glad, confident morning because... They've never forgiven Brexit, you see. They would love to realign Britain with the European Union, rejoin it if they could. We are run by a collection of fools and knaves, ladies and gentlemen. Some of them fools and knaves at the same time. We are guarded by a fourth estate of charlatans, And the hero, Julian Assange, lies forgotten by that fourth estate in the media in Belmarsh jail this very evening. But I tell you objectively, as someone who's been in politics now for more than 50 years, on Thursday in North Shropshire, the death knell will sound for the premiership of Boris Johnson. What comes next? People say to me, who do you recommend? I wouldn't vote for any of them. But I am sure of one thing. Boris Johnson is an ex-Prime Minister. Are these the last days of Boris Johnson PM? You can vote on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube channel and on my Telegram channel. Now Kevin Maher is our go-to man for events in Parliament, Former parliamentary factotum himself and connected to the political process in all kinds of ways. Kevin Marr joins me now. Uh, Kevin, you are a former Labour advisor. Are you surprised uh, that uh, Keir Starmer is nine points clear of Boris Johnson in today's opinion polls?
3: Well, that was uh, the week that was um, George. It's been a, a howler of a week um, for Boris Johnson. So I think it would be um, inevitable if there wasn't um, electoral polling ramifications um, for the week that he's had, and indeed that, that's what we've seen in the last last forty eight hours. We've seen it. We've seen a slew of polls that have put a Labour lead now between four and nine points. So so something something has changed this week i think i think i think everybody can sense it um it's not quite end of days um for boris johnson um that will come i think if enough of his backbench mp's feel that over a period of weeks or months the government can't get its act together that it's accident prone and that it's it's behind in the polls in a structural sense and that 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 would therefore mean that they would lose their seats in any any forthcoming election i think that's the point when his own side will um, move against him. And I think at some stage they definitely will. I mean, it, it was reminiscent of me, uh, for me slightly, um, this last week of um, that week that you'll be very familiar with in, in September, 1992, um, um, when when uh, John Major's credibility uh, was smashed on the rocks on, on Black Wednesday. Um, and although he stayed in power for another four and a half years, uh, when that reckoning came in May, 1997, uh, virtually destroyed the Conservative Party. It was their worst ever election defeat in the 20th century. Um, the, so, so I think with with governments, um, once you start slipping and sliding, you've got to either A, correct that very, very quickly uh, and be very bold in how you do that and recognise that you, you're slipping and sliding. Or it tends to just carry on. And if it carries on, then it becomes very, very difficult to re-establish trust and credibility, I think, with the electorate. And I think, I think Boris Johnson has kind of forfeited um, so much trust and credibility this week with the revelations that have come out of the, the various parties and, and, and social gatherings and little a takes that were taking place uh, in Downing Street and in other, in other government departments, um, right at the time when, of course, the rest of us were being told to uh, socially distance, to not have parties, to not have gatherings, to not see our families, and all the rest of it. And it's that double standard. It's that that sense of just rampant hypocrisy, um, which is very, very damaging for, for any 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 political leader. Um and I think that's what stuck to him this week. And I think I think from the Labour side, um there's been a kind of scratching of heads for quite a long time about Boris Johnson. How do you land punches on this, this very um this very strange political character that that has that won quite convincingly two years ago today, won an 80-seat majority? Um, the bumbling and the kind of affectations that that he has, which which uh, you know made made him very, very difficult to kind of characterize an attack. And I think what he's done this week is is frankly just just do it to himself. Uh, and I think Keir Starmer's instinct is to sort of sit back a little bit, um, let him carry on slipping and sliding. He's got this um, review. Uh, into these into the allegations about these parties that the cabinet secretary is now obliged to to undertake there's got to be some conclusion to that i think it's very hard to conclude anything other than parties took place and 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 you know people were at them and and, and who you know who knew about that um that's going to stick and that's going to last um as 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 political damage and one of the things that struck me so much this week is with you know with one foot um outside the kind of the political camp i mean i i look at my social media feeds and, and, and family and friends and people who are not usually commenting on political matters, you know, everybody's been commenting on this. Everybody's been sharing these memes and these cartoons and these bits of footage about um, the parties in Downing Street. It's done real lasting damage. And I, th- I think, there's, as I said, there's a palpable sense that something has changed this week. And if it's not immediate curtains for Boris Johnson, then this is the point, I think, at which um, his premiership is in a terminal stage.
2: How much would a Conservative defeat on Thursday in North Shropshire affect the whole picture, Kevin?
3: I, I think that really would bring things into focus. Now, I mean, on the numbers, you you would say it's very difficult um, to, to see them um, any, doing anything other than holding that seat, um, probably with a very reduced majority, probably with a few squeaky moments um, over, over coming days, but it would be very hard to see um, the Conservatives losing that. If they did, if, if they were to lose it, then, you know, all things are on the table, I think, at that point, because if you can lose places like that, uh, there, then all these other conservative MPs, many of whom with very small majorities, those in the red wall areas in the north of England and in East and West Midlands, um, they would be looking and saying, "Well, if we can lose places like in Shropshire, then my seats, you know, my seats, I'm a, I'm a goner." And at that point, it becomes very difficult to instil discipline in the in the in the parliamentary party. And I think that's going to take up a lot more time, regardless, um, for Boris Johnson this week. He's been he's been very cavalier in his approach to being prime minister. He's very poorly briefed on on pretty much any issue doesn't do very much media has obviously struggled with 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 covid and, and and dealing with the fallout of Brexit and all the rest of it and I think if he really had to try much harder to um to win around his parliamentary colleagues on, on on lots of type type votes that will that will come up then I think there comes a point for, for somebody like Boris that what do you actually enjoy about this job because governing is hard um, it's often very unglamorous. These are very long hours. Uh, lots of things can go wrong. Um, and I think there comes a point with, with characters like him that are a kind of slightly kind of flibbity um characters w- where they say, w- what is it that I enjoy about being prime minister? Because it probably isn't this. And I think that may hasten um, his departure as well. He may want to go at some stage under his own terms, perhaps saying, look, I've managed to see off Covid and secure Brexit. I've got my my little place in history. Um, After that, what's the point in hanging around, really?
2: Yes. Well, let's turn to one of those uh, type votes. Uh, There are scores of Conservatives already registered that they will not support uh, the uh, lockdown Covid measures. Uh, that uh, are coming up in the Commons this week. He would therefore lose that vote if it wasn't for the fact that Keir Starmer is going to support him, showing at the very least that he doesn't really have uh, the killer instinct, uh, Keir Starmer. What's your take on that?
3: I think Labour's in a bind because one of the the great um, strategic weaknesses... Um, that the party's got and that that Keir Starmer is, is, you know, probably rightly obsessed about, is um, the sense of um, competence and acting in the national interest and all the rest of it. Now, Now... perhaps that's a dilemma for all opposition parties you're trying to prove that you should change positions with the governing party so 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 you want to try and emphasize your how seriously you take issues um so i I think i think it's interesting to hear labour politicians um reference um the support that they're likely to give the government this week on its on its kind of plan b um proposals for a sort of sort of soft lo-fi lockdown um they're, they're talking about backing the chief medical officer and the chief scientific advisor, they're, they're framing it very much in that sense that we're not backing Boris Johnson, we're not backing the health secretary, we're backing the you know the expert advisors. If their if their expert advice is that we need to take um further measures um to limit the transmission of, of um, omicron, then then we'll do that. And if that you know means that we end up Backing the government, and then you know, that's the kind of the secondary motive. I think that's the uh, the kind of the kind of the, the Labour position. Um but it's very interesting the fact that there are obviously lots of conservative MPs that are very restive about this, um, that that have been very skeptical throughout about what measures are in fact needed and are any of these measures um excessive to to actually meeting the challenge and I think there'll be a few of them that we that will be pondering whether um the, the kind of um the plan b measures that we've seen and Boris Johnson of course is due to address the British public uh tonight how much of this is theatre to um to try and uh, address what has been a very disastrous week politically um it's a very it's a very it's a very dangerous game because as i say, th- these these two issues are intimately connected that that um you know the people in down the street have been messing around um with their parties last year and then are asking us again to take fairly draconian measures ahead of christmas and for lots of people in the country they will be saying well why should i because you didn't do it um, and, and I'm not necessarily convinced that the measures are proportionate to the to the risk. So it it, it starts to affect the you know the entire public health strategies. To be honest, um, and I think that um, there are a lot of conservative MPs that are very very um, sceptical um, about how effective um, some of the lockdown measures have been. Uh, and if they decide to vote against the government this week, and, and Boris Johnson always survives because of the votes of Labour MPs, then again it will add to a sense of malaise at the heart of government um, and it will put Boris Johnson and lots of his parliamentary colleagues on a different track which again starts to become very difficult to manage in the the weeks and months ahead, um, not only in relation to COVID but to some of the Brexit issues that we're still dealing with, the Northern Ireland Protocol for example and some of the other um, difficult legislative issues that he's got as well. If if there's a chunk of his parliamentary party that ends up in a different place repeatedly, then some of these people might start to ask, um, is he the prime minister for us?
2: Finally, Kevin, I'm grateful for your time, as always. Let's uh, look into the crystal ball. Uh, Boris is no confidence or uh, decides that, frankly, this isn't worth the, the, the salary on which he can't live in any case, certainly can't pay his alimony off that salary and bring up his growing family Addition. Born this week, of course. Let's look into the crystal ball. If Boris either walked or was pushed, who would your money be on as the next Tory leader and thus prime minister
3: for the next uh, two and a half years? It's a difficult one. Um, I think if you were to say what's the batting average of somebody that takes over as prime minister, um, while the government, if you like, is, is in office, then you always always look to the Chancellor and the Foreign Secretary as the, as the most likely candidates. So we, we, we're told uh, apparently today that Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, is is, is in the background, um, uh, sort of uh, on manoeuvres, as they say, um, with, with a, view to, a view to this as well. But I think if you look at people like you know Dominic Raab, um, you know they're not they're not compelling political figures. Um, the First Secretary of State, effectively Deputy Prime Minister. Um, you know, I, I think I think it is it is pretty thin gruel. I suspect uh, Rishi Sunak is seriously undercooked as 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 a political figure. Um, he seems very gauche. Seems very. Um, I think it would be very difficult for him to step up. I think I think the smart money at the moment might be on Sajid Javid. Now, as I say, the difficulty for him as health secretary, is he's got an advantage and a disadvantage. His advantage is he does appear um, as a serious person, which which in a government of people who are not desperately serious sometimes um, sets him apart. The difficulty he's got is that, as I say, some of those um, backbenchers don't want any more of these lockdown measures um, and Sajid Javid will, will will go with the scientific advice and, and bring them through. So it's a question really of... of um, what's what's the um, what's the reason that Boris Johnson goes? Is it is it a sense of um, that he's just an unserious person, and therefore do you address that deficit with a serious person? And as I say, m- my money would probably be on Sajid Javid uh, to fulfil that that role, or do they want an ideological figure? Um, to, to kind of um, take things forward. And, well, you know, let, me let me put a dark horse,
2: let me put an ideological dark horse to you, the dog that didn't bark to uh, to mix the metaphors. Michael Gove hasn't been seen or heard of for some time. Uh, what about if he's, uh, politically speaking, drying out and getting ready for, uh, and he's quite uh, in the habit of uh, plunging in the uh, the political dagger, what about uh, Michael Gove seeking to take over, and very soon?
3: Um, Michael, Michael Gove, I think intellectually, and, and, and in many respects politically, is, is kind of head and shoulders above most of the cabinet. I think Michael Gove's difficulty, and, it, and it, I mean, it's, it's, a terrible, it's a terrible kind of reflection on, on the superficiality often of, of, of politics and presentational politics. He kind of just doesn't look the part. I and mean, that seems a very blunt and very unfair assessment. But I, I'm, I'm reminded of exactly the same uh, characterization of Robin Cook. Uh, you've in, taken in the, the words right out of
2: my mouth. But Robin, R- R- Cook, R- Robin said Cook said to me... Robin Cook looks like
3: a garden gnome. Yeah,
2: when he, I he asked said, Robin, why don't you run? He said, uh, people think I'm too ugly. And I, yeah, looked, I, I, I looked across at John Major and I said, how handsome do you have to
3: be? <laughs> <laughs> it's, ter- it's terrible. It's, it's so superficial. I mean, M- Michael, Michael Gove is you know, a feline political operator and, and you know, intellectually smart and, and, and perfectly capable. But, but I think he's, he, he, he tends to kind of, you know, ha, 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 he presents himself in a certain way, which, which people draw very stark conclusions straight away is the kindest way of saying he's a bit ugly.
2: <laughs> Plug. Well, look, Kevin, thank you very much indeed for that tour of the horizon. I'm sure you'll be watching uh, Boris address the nation at eight o'clock, but most of my audience would prefer to be addressed by me. Thank you very much indeed. Now, look, the poll is going great guns. Are these the last days of Boris Johnson, PM? On Twitter, uh, the answer is a yes, sixty-one percent. B no, thirty-nine percent. On YouTube, it's uh, higher. Yes, sixty-eight percent. No. and on Telegram, yes, 72%, no, 28%. You can vote for another hour or so on that. It's not really about whether you want this to be the last days, uh, whether you prefer somebody else to him, it's really about uh, whether or not you think these are, objectively speaking, the last uh, days. Let me read one or two social media points. Graham says, doesn't matter what leader or what party at the moment, Labour and Tory both singing the same corporate song. And Nick says, but if and when he's replaced, either by a new prime minister or even by a new party, well, that can't happen. The next prime minister will be a Conservative. uh, They will still have the same civil servants, the same advisers, etc., And uh, Nyla says, yes, we're having a huge going away party. Protest for him on Saturday, December the 18th outside Downing Street and Parliament Square at 12 noon. Please spread the word and feel free to join us. We know Boris loves party, so (laughs) what a nice way for us to show him the door. Smiling face with open mouth and tightly closed eyes. That's the tweet of the night so far. Uh, Now, uh, amongst many huge stories uh, that have been uh, rolling out this week, the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell should have been right up there. But I don't know about you. I get the feeling the mainstream media are doing their best to pretend uh, that it isn't happening. Uh, A a, a scion of the, um, the commercial capitalist, aristocracy is on trial in a New York courtroom charged with really quite heinous, sordid, dirty offences that could send her to prison for 80 years. Moreover, some of the household names of the last 30 years, some of the richest and most powerful people in the world are being name-checked hourly in the courtroom. I was following a number of outlets on Twitter to get uh, an hour-by-hour play-by-play until Twitter closed them down. But they can't close us down, and they'll never close down my next guest, Kirby Summers, who has done so much uh, to keep this story in the public eye and whose book, uh, books now on Ghislaine Maxwell are a great read and uh, rapidly becoming bestsellers. Uh, and she joins us again. Kirby, thank you for doing so. Uh, just uh, summarize the kind of week that Ghislaine Maxwell has had, if you would.
4: Hi, George. Thanks Hi. for having me again.
2: Welcome.
4: Well, it's been um, a very interesting two weeks. Mainstream media, the very few who are reporting, are busy on Twitter, Making up lies. Oh, the the, the 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 there's a lot of coverage, and there was a photograph taken by a New York Times reporter for the New York Times of three people in in front of the courtroom. Three reporters. They said, "Look at the crowd." Well, the crowd of three. So this is the biggest um, criminal case of our lifetime, in my opinion. I'm going to remind everyone of what she is charged of, but it is the least covered. I think the only people that are covering it are people like yourself, me, and some random people on Twitter. Would you agree?
2: Yes. And it's bizarre. The Rittenhouse uh, uh, trial was wall to wall, live courtroom footage. Uh, And that's been true of so many cases uh, that, uh, that had less of an international impact than this case.
4: Agree. What happened is that on November 2nd, the the COVID restriction for the courts was uh, changed, but it was uh, then given over to the judges to make the determination whether or not they would do what they had done from the time that she appeared on July the 14th of 2020 for the first bail hearing I called in, many people called in throughout the course of this trial. It's still a federal trial. Federal trials are not televised, but you can call in, especially during COVID. But isn't that interesting that on November 2nd, you know, just very soon before the trial of Glenn Maxwell is scheduled to begin, which was November 29th. The law changed, giving again the judge the ability to deny or accept. And Judge Nathan uh, decided there's going to be no call in. And I don't know if I need to remind your audience, but uh, our current president, Joe Biden, did give Judge Nathan a nomination for the second court, you know, this circuit of uh a second circuit court uh, just one week before the trial began. That's so like a, me, a that
2: promotion, was, in other words.
4: Yes, it's actually the, the, the one level beneath the highest court. Um, so that happened. Uh, but so the charges are, to remind everyone, yeah. uh, she is charged with one count of enticing a minor to travel to engage in illegal sex acts. That carries a a maximum sentence of five years. There's one count of conspiracy to entice a minor to travel to engage in illegal sex acts. And that's another five years. There's one count of transporting a minor with the intent to engage in criminal sexual activity. That's 10 years there's one count of conspiracy to transport a minor with the intent to engage in criminal sexual activity. And that carries a sentence of five years. So if she is convicted, you're looking at Glenn, you know, forty plus years in prison. However, this is just the first trial. I don't know if many people are aware, but there are two uh, counts of perjury which were part of this initial trial, but which they requested. Glenn Maxwell's attorneys requested they be put into a second trial. So after this trial is over, win or lose, Glenn Maxwell is still in jail because the second trial has to begin for the perjury.
2: And what were the big names and big allegations that are big evidence, if you like, that emerged in the last week, Kirby?
4: Well, I'll tell you, um, what was interesting is that Juan Alessi, who was Jeffrey Epstein's, uh, you can call him his house man, his his butler, his housekeeper, mentioned big names. Uh, the pilots who have been with Jeffrey Epstein for since the 1990s, one was with him commencing 1991, Another was with him, commencing 1997, until you know the the very end. uh, They named big names, uh, you know, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Prince Andrew, you name it. I mean, they named many, many prominent people. However, you know, the pilots were were make comments that I personally do not believe. They said that when they were questioned as to whether or not they saw anything inappropriate on Jeffrey Epstein's planes, and they they both said they saw nothing. They saw nothing. They heard nothing. They saw nothing, but.
2: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
4: if the bathroom is in the rear of the airplane so that they would have to go to the rear of the airplane. Um, However, from the victims, from the court testimonies, from even myself, knowing some of the victims uh, the word is that they were abused in every place, not just on Jeffrey Epstein's Island, not just in his homes, but in his vehicles and definitely on the plane. I mean, Jeffrey Epstein went so far as to put padded carpeting on the floor for orgies on the airplane. Wow. So for those two yeah, so the two pilots to say that that was so disingenuous. I thought, okay, perjury, perjury. But will will they be held to account? I don't think so. Um the whole thing has just been um Ah, uh, it's, it's heart wrenching to see the four women who are now they were one was four, two of them were 14. They're 40, 41 years old now, waiting a very long time for justice. So this was the other one was um, 17. And this is interesting. The one that was 17, Galen Maxwell met her initially in Paris with one of her friends one of Glenn Maxwell's friends who went to school with her at Oxford university. So, so that he is a much older man. And to me, I found that really interesting. You've, I don't know if, I think you've read Glenn Maxwell, an unauthorized biography. Sure, of and, course. Yeah. And all of the interesting people that I dug out from getting scrubbed from the internet forever, um, So that it it was interesting to me that someone that Glenn Maxwell met in Oxford was dating a 17-year-old girl, right? And then, you know, introduces her to Glenn Maxwell. They they go on to meet up with her in London. Glenn Maxwell, because this girl, she's 17, she's starting to go to school and Glenn uh, befriends her invites her for tea. So she treats her with a little bit more class, let's say, than the other girls that she would just sort of, you know, jump in and sort of take advantage of. So she, she uh, make, well, what was clear was that she really used her charm and, and, and her, the illusion that she was their friend, you know, interested in their lives. For all of them, she made them promises that she would help their careers, that Jeffrey Epstein could help them achieve whatever they wanted, that they needed to help. And, and um, but it was heartbreaking because her defense attorneys are animals, animals, the way they spoke to these girls and these the two points that the attorneys are attacking them on is their ability to remember. So they're claiming you're, you're misremembering. That's not what you said, you know, in such and such a year. And then they pull up documents and instead of making it easy, they, they confuse them. There's like, oh, line this, you know, sort of like a very legalese conversation with a victim They're just normal people. They're not lawyers to know it's this line and this, pair. you know, very, very unusual behavior. Uh, So they're attacking them on that front and they're attacking them. And by the way, before I say this, I want to say that this is a federal case, or at least it should be. Right. But so there is no money. The victims are not testifying to get money at the end of this trial. This is just to put Galen behind bars and make her pay for her crimes, which are severe. Um, But the four victims were completely slut shamed, I'm gonna use that term, for having taken a settlement from the Epstein's Victims' Compensation Fund, which they were almost forced into. So to get into the compensation fund, some of these victims had lawsuits against Glenn Maxwell.
2: Why, why was that admissible, given that uh, these uh, victims, having taken the money from the compensation fund, had nothing further to gain from giving evidence in a criminal trial where, as you say, no financial reward is the result, even if you are entirely vindicated?
4: Yes, what they're trying to do, from from my perspective, is this is a New York jury. So I have my spies in the courtroom because I figured, you know, this is still Robert Maxwell's daughter. I might as well have my spies. I don't want to go to the courtroom every day. So I have my spies. And um, it's my understanding that the jury... uh, is very New Yorkie, and so th- what that means is that in New York City, the only people that really end up going to jury duty are hardworking people or retired people, of of different different ethnicities. And so I think their strategy has been to say, "Oh, she got one point five million dollars. That's not in, you know that's not insignificant." Or, so that to say big numbers like that in front of a jury that's going to decide the fate of Glenn Maxwell, in my opinion, I think that it's to make them look at the victims not in a sympathetic way, but sort of as they're only, you know, they only decided to say bad things about Glenn Maxwell because they wanted that money. But that's not true because what happened was In order to get that money, they had to then withdraw their lawsuit against Galen, which would have produced what we really want to see. It would have produced discovery. It would have produced what Virginia Dufresne's lawsuit produced, which is most of the information that we have access to. That's why we know about Prince Andrew. That's why we have that photograph of Prince Andrew and Virginia and Galen. So all of that discovery is out the window because they were told by the administrator of the fund, well, you can take this money, it's a sure thing. And by the way, they would have gotten more if they won, like Virginia, you know, she Galen settled. Um, so they were misled, frankly, into accepting money that really they didn't really need to take. Um, but they were told, oh, the jury, you know, it'll go on forever, blah, blah. The other thing I want to bring to mind is she's still being allowed to do things in court that no one else that I have ever seen in a a courtroom do. So, for example, during the breaks, she sends notes back and forth to her sister, Isabel, to her brother, Kevin. Kevin and Isabel send notes to her, um, Uh, I mean, her brother, Kevin, will lean forward in his seat, remove his glasses, look intently, you know, sort of like almost you can tell when someone is sending you bad energy and sitting in the courtroom and you're, a you know, you're a traumatized victim reliving the worst years of your life. And you have this. Older man, because now what? He's almost 70, I think.
2: Well, they are uh, Maxwell's. uh, The apples didn't fall all that far from the tree. Kirby, thank you for that update. We'll speak to you again, I'm sure. Now, I've been addressing not just the nation, but many nations uh, since uh, 7 o'clock. But at 8 o'clock, Boris Johnson addressed this nation. Let's find out what he said and whether anyone actually believed it. My RT colleague and friend Shadia Edwards Dashti was listening for us on the mother of all talk shows, and she joins me. Now, Shadia, thank you for doing this. We didn't expect to uh, work you on a a Sunday night, but uh, Boris uh, surprised us all uh, with this impromptu address to the nation. Uh, What did he say?
6: Oh, what did he say? What did he not say? Same old slogan, same old story, really, as what we heard from Boris Johnson just a few minutes ago. Same key buzzwords, you know, things like it's an emergency situation. We are in a critical, urgent time. There's a tidal wave of Omicron coming. But the real tidal wave is how bad is British politics now? Because nobody can believe a word that Boris Johnson says anymore. Yes, we all know that we're in a really dire situation when it comes to the pandemic. We've all been living in it for the last two years. So we know this loud. And clear, but everything that he was saying was nothing really new. He was saying how bad it is and get boosted now. That was his uh, main slogan, the main takeaway today. But while uh, Boris Johnson was talking, I do think it's important to say this at the very same time, t- trending on Twitter was nation switch off. That was basically people on Twitter saying switch off the TV, don't listen to Boris Johnson because, quite frankly, the public just don't want to hear from him anymore.
2: I think that's uh, unfortunately, perhaps, uh, absolutely true. Uh, there's, there's two questions immediately arise. Let me deal with the most banal Uh, get boosted now. I've been trying to get boosted for some weeks, but I've not yet been able to. And I'm, as you know, over 50. Uh, uh, So uh, he's promised, I'm told, that everyone will be offered a booster, every adult, every adult, not just people over 50 like me, by the end of the year, which is actually very soon. Uh, How credible a promise is that?
6: So what we're hearing from Boris Johnson today is anybody over the age of 18 will be boosted by the end of January next ah. year. Now, ah. that is pretty much an impossible situation considering everything that we've seen over the last two years, almost now, all of these... uh promises, these deadlines. You know, think back to the time of the track and trace situation. Think back to the time that everyone, one million people will be uh, vaccinated and one million people will be tested. All of these promises and under delivering. So you can say any adult will be uh, vaccinated, have their third uh, jab, their booster jab by this certain X, Y, Z date, but really can the government deliver on any of that? So when we hear this sort of thing from Boris Johnson, quite frankly, this amount of time into the pandemic, people are just thinking, what are you? Why are you coming on my television on a Sunday evening to tell me this when every single time you've come on my television, you haven't ever delivered what you said you were going to do?
2: The second thing that arises is this. It's a bit more problematic. Did he address the fact Uh, that the woman that discovered Omicron attests that it is less deadly. She says far less deadly uh, than the Delta variant, which was uh, hitherto uh, dominant. And that she thinks that Britain has panicked entirely unnecessarily. I'll tell you my problem, Shadia. Words like tidal wave... Uh, Mm. or in Nicola Sturgeon's case, a tsunami. Uh, These are words that are deliberately used to panic people when many authorities attest that actually there's nothing to panic about. Of course, it would be better not to get the Omicron, but it turns out it might be better to get the Omicron than to get the Delta. Did he deal with that?
6: No, he didn't speak about anything like that. And he always says, let's go to Chris Whitty, who will talk through the slides. Boris Johnson wants to do the rhetoric and the slogan, then he moves shifting responsibility elsewhere to talk about the real situation. We have many, many scientists saying, it's not as deadly as so-and-so and X, Y, Z. Science aside, I'm not a scientist, I don't know the answer to that, but what my problem is if you, as the Prime Minister, are going to say this is a tidal wave, a tsunami of a situation then why on earth are you going to a Christmas party at the heights of this said tsunami? Why are you hosting pub quizzes? This isn't just one slip up or two. There are a handful now of allegations of Christmas parties or gatherings or let's call it a business meeting where Boris Johnson and his chums are breaking the rules that they set in stone. So Whether it's a tidal wave or not, I'm not sure. I have no idea about the absolute science, but what we're seeing is that the science behind it is sort of really being challenged on all corners of the globe. And so that's one thing, whether or not what they're saying is true, but the other issue is if it is true, and even if they think it's true, then why aren't they going with the rules themselves?
2: Sure, I mean, even the new plan B Uh, We're supposed to work from home, but go up the West End uh, at the weekend and and party. Uh, We're told by Boris Johnson's government, not in Scotland, uh, that the Christmas parties should go ahead. Well, if it's a tsunami, a tidal wave headed our way, uh, these decisions that they're making don't quite square with that.
6: No, no, they really do not square with that at all. Quite frankly, I was actually expecting a larger announcement than it was this evening. I thought Boris Johnson was actually going to move towards more of a lockdown situation because we're hearing all of this fear-mongering, scare kind of slogans of tidal wave, tsunami, urgent, emergency, keep your loved ones safe, we've got to protect the NHS, you name it, we've heard it. So I was expecting a bit more. So things aren't really adding up at the same time and it's very difficult for the public to sort of get on board with Boris Johnson's bipolar personality in terms of his uh, political rhetoric because if we look back to last year one minute was eat out to help out go go to work but don't get on the tube get the public transport but or go and get in your car rather than get the public transport but we're putting congestion charge up this is a really impossible situation for people to get their head around and it's so difficult, not only for people to abide, but quite frankly, what you're probably going to see is people are just going to say, I- I'm not doing it. I'm actually not doing it.
2: Well, thank you for watching it, Shadia. So I didn't have to. Uh, it's very kind <laughs> of you, Shadia edwards team my colleague on RT. Now, my RT America colleague, Rachel Blevins, is always our number one go-to on events across the Atlantic, and I'm glad to say she joins us again now. Rachel, welcome back to the Mother of All Talk Shows. Last week, it looked like war uh, between uh, Ukraine and Russia. Uh, Ukraine, of course, being able to count on American military backing. Then there was a Zoom conference uh, between President Biden and President Putin. This weekend, it doesn't look so likely what can you tell us about that?
7: Yeah, it sure is ironic how all of a sudden President Biden got on that phone call and just fixed everything. At least that's kind of what the media is leading you to believe. They are really running with this narrative that Biden got on the phone with Putin, they talked for a few hours, he talked tough and then Putin backed down. Now, the only problem with that narrative is that if you pay attention to how this scene has unfolded, you realize that Russia has been saying for weeks now that they have no plans to invade Ukraine. And yet it's people within the Biden administration, it's top mainstream networks here that have carried on this narrative and almost made it as if it is believable, only to then come up to the point where you have Biden getting on this phone call and coming in and fixing the entire situation. And I think it just goes to show how ridiculous the media has become at this point that they have literally created something out of thin air. They've pushed the narrative that they want to push and they've ignored Russia's response to it all the way through because they know that the average American is not going to actually do their research. The average American is not going to take the time to say, well, wait a second, what is Russia doing here? What do they have to gain from it versus what is Ukraine doing? And of course, the biggest question of all of this, why is the United States getting involved in a conflict like this, why is the U.S. ramping up the aid, the weapons that it's sending to Ukraine, and how does that serve American interest?
2: Yeah, they created a straw man in order to knock that straw man down. They pretended that Russia was about to invade Ukraine, and when it doesn't, they want to claim the credit for that. It's an old story, really, Rachel
7: that it is and it is interesting to see the fact that biden is at the center of all of this because at the end of the day we remember when donald trump was in office there was such a push for him to be tough on russia and the way that they did it was by saying well russia wanted trump to win so then trump comes into office and he feels like he's really got to stand up to russia and now biden has a version of that but there's also this pressure on him to look tough and you know the media really doesn't they don't want to talk about all of the US failures in the middle east anymore instead now they're making this pivot toward China and Russia and it is incredibly concerning when we look at the fact that this week congress passed their defense spending bill for 2022 to the tune of 768 billion dollars that's 25 billion dollars more than Biden actually asked for and more than the pentagon asked for and yet when you look at the fact that the US says that it is ramping down its involvement in the Middle East, you really wonder, why are we adding to the defense budget? Why are we giving more money to Ukraine to ramp up tensions there? Why are we increasing U.S. involvement in the Indo-Pacific and increasing those tensions with China? I mean, what good is that doing? And why isn't there more talk about it at the end of the day?
2: It's welfare for capitalism, isn't it? Because more than half of that staggering or eye-watering sum goes in procurement to the military-industrial complex, some of which is given back in kickbacks, some of it is given back in campaign contributions, some of it is given back in revolving door appointments, uh, etc. Once people leave office, once they leave government service, Uh, the uh, poor bloody infantry, the service personnel, got... uh, a wage increase out of that budget, which is much less than your rate of inflation. Your rate of inflation yeah. is now at more or less uh, recent record levels. And the troops got, I think, 2.5%. So actually, they got a pay cut out of this Me. new mega uh, military budget. Tell us about the inflation. I saw you have been writing and talking about it.
7: Yeah, that is an excellent point there to look at I mean, them giving the troops two and a half percent, that is almost laughable. And you're right here in the United States, inflation is at nearly 40 year highs. That's what it reached last month. And we're seeing that all around in every part of our daily lives, whether it's just going to the grocery store, whether it's putting gas in your car and yet we have a federal reserve a central bank in this country that has done this on purpose they started it at the beginning of the pandemic when they looked at the fact that the u.s was going to be going into unprecedented lockdowns they looked at the fact that our production was going to be halted in a lot of ways and so they said okay we'll print more money we'll make it so that you know we keep pumping more money into the economy as if it was going to be good for the american people as if it was going to be good for the dollar well the problem is That even though more Americans are getting back to work, even though you have unemployment at record lows, they Actually haven't stopped pumping that money into the economy instead you have these central bank officials sitting there and saying oh well, we'll taper it a little bit each month we'll still keep interest rates at record lows and we'll just continue this well the problem is that you've got Americans who are now paying more than ever in their daily lives and yet even with all of the people talking about how the Americans coming back to work got extra bonuses or they got a little bit more in their hourly salary, well, that's not enough to set off the 40-year highs that we're seeing when it comes to inflation. And it really is this rising bubble that if the Biden administration doesn't truly have to deal with it, well, it's going to have to be dealt with down the road. We always joke about Congress passing their spending bills every few months as if they are kicking the can down the road. Well, that's what they're doing. But it is a very, very dire situation.
2: Now, it never rains, but it pours. And you had these awful uh, uh, tornadoes uh, this week. I saw some pictures of towns that looked like they'd been uh, in a war. In fact, looked like the United States had just bombed them. (laughs)
7: Yeah, it is truly tragic and that I mean, it just it felt like it came overnight. I know the state of Kentucky is saying that this is the worst tornado that they've ever seen. It's feared that at least 100 people could be dead. And you're talking about tornadoes that swept across several states, Kentucky, Tennessee, Missouri, Mississippi, those were all among them. And I know that this is a situation where, you know, here in the United States, unfortunately, it takes severe weather for us to really come together, band together, and then make those necessary remedies where that's needed. And we've already seen a lot of volunteers on the ground and obviously they are going to do everything that they can but it serves as a reminder of the importance of our infrastructure here in this country because at any given time i mean this is a country that routinely sees hurricanes, tornadoes, you name it. I know I'm from North Texas, and so we don't usually see tornadoes quite like this, but you do get used to those storms every single year, and it serves as a reminder that the government has to take infrastructure seriously because you get into a situation like this, and really they are no match for Mother Nature at the end of the day.
2: No, nobody is. Rachel, thanks very much for joining us. A very busy show this evening. Uh, I hope we get an opportunity to talk uh, longer. Now, Professor William Hogan is on the line from Florida. He's from Doctors for Assange, uh, joining us at uh, short notice. And I'm very grateful to you, Professor William Hogan. Thanks for joining us. I wanted to speak to you about the news that on top of all the other trials and tribulations, Julian has now had a mini stroke. Do you think if the court had known about that, they might have made a, a different decision the other day in uh, the London High Court?
8: Well, that's certainly hard to say. You would hope so. Um, if, he's, if he's not fit medically to um, attend the court hearing, how can he be fit medically to be extradited to the United States? How
2: serious is a mini-stroke?
8: Generally, the, the, the consequences are not long-lasting, but the risk is that it'll happen again and in a more severe way. It indicates he's got atherosclerosis of his arteries. This was what we call an ischemic event. Uh, therefore, it's a blockage of blood flow. Um, and he had a, an MRI done of his brain to make sure that there was no uh, permanent damage uh, but again, it indicates that you know these things don't happen in 50-year-old men normally, and the reason he's got this happening now is because he's being he's being tortured in prison, and that level of stress results in ather- we know it results in atherosclerosis of the arteries. He's probably also at risk for a heart attack now and other ischemic events.
2: Now, some will think uh, you exaggerated there when you said he's being tortured in prison, but. That was exactly how his situation was described by the United Nations Special Rapporteur on torture, wasn't it?
8: That's correct. All the evidence that we have uh, with respect to torture is that he's being tortured. Four experts in the assessment of torture, uh, assessment of torture victims using the Istanbul Protocol, all have come to the same conclusion independently. That includes uh, Dr. Meltzer. He was accompanied to Belmarsh Prison to visit Julian by two doctors, two medical experts. They all interviewed Julian and examined him independently and then conferred afterwards. And they all said, yeah, it's conclusive. He didn't show most or many of the symptoms of torture. He showed all the symptoms of torture. Everyone who's examined uh, Mr. Assange, Uh, as a victim of torture, has come to the same conclusion. The evidence is conclusive, it's overwhelming, and it's unanimous.
2: Why does your president want to see uh, a journalist tortured for words that he wrote and published?
8: Wow. (laughs) That's hard to say. I think it's because he exposed wrongdoing by the government wrongdoing that Mr. Biden himself participated in. Uh, Mr. Biden, as a senator, voted in favor of the Iraq war uh, and the war in Afghanistan. Um, And so I think he's probably implicated in some of the WikiLeaks releases. And so uh, he's covering up his own crimes.
2: The CIA are desperate to, uh, to see Assange nailed down in a coffin, aren't they? Because some of the most dramatic disclosures that Julian and WikiLeaks made uh, were deeply embarrassing, uh, shaming of the CIA.
8: That's right. So on several levels. So uh, the torture at Guantanamo. So there was the WikiLeaks releases, the Guantanamo files. That was used by a a German citizen uh, to prove that he had been tortured. When he got back, he was left. With only his clothes released by the CIA at the border. He had to walk home. um, And when he got back, his wife had returned to Lebanon, um, and no one would believe his story about how brutally he had been tortured. Um, And then also Vault 7 releases. So the CIA was furious about the Vault 7 releases. We now know from reporting by Yahoo News, Mike Isikoff and his colleagues, that Mike Pompeo was so enraged by the Vault 7 releases that he started plots to assassinate Assange. And this went up to what Isikoff describes as the highest levels of the administration. And this is supported by over 30 sources they had. So yes, the CIA absolutely is out for vengeance. Vengeance is destructive. They're going to uh, break their toe, as it were. I'm trying to remember the exact expression. They're gonna break their toe on Assange in a bad way. And the the vengeance is self-destructive. And so the CIA is self-destructing on their vengeance on Assange.
2: Professor, you're a a physician yourself, an eminent one. Uh, As you look at Julian Assange and absorb the uh, material that uh, is there about his psychological and now physical health, it's unconscionable, isn't it, that you would extradite such a man uh, to, apart from anything else, it's so... Utterly disproportionate. Uh, you know, this is not a mass murderer. This is a man that published words.
8: That's right. It is disproportionate. It's unconscionable. Um, it's beyond the pale. Um, it's you know, from medically speaking, you know, it's it's shocking to the conscience, and that's why we form doctors for Assange. And, We have uh, over 250 doctors in the organization and we're speaking out against it.
2: Professor, thanks for joining us at short notice. I really do uh, appreciate it. Uh, Let's take Simon in London on uh, Austin Allegra Stratton, the erstwhile press advisor, public relations advisor to the prime minister who had to resign in the week after some very embarrassing footage of hers, somehow miraculously appeared on ITV News. Uh, Simon, welcome.
5: How are you doing, George? you okay?
2: Good. The better for hearing from you. What would you like to say? Uh, Scott, uh, Scott, uh, just a uh,
5: quick um, uh, thing I want to say. Basically, you've you had Jesse Ventura on your show in the past, as you know. Yes. A very great man. A very great, a great friend of mine, man. <laughs> yes. One of the best talkers I've ever seen, I, of course, in the 1980s, I used to follow pro wrestling, but it's interesting what he once said. Um, in pro wrestling, there's something called kayfabe. I don't know whether you're familiar with that term. No. Kayfabe is effectively the line between fiction and reality. And in the past, wrestlers who were involved in the wrestling industry effectively were outcasted. if they ever broke kayfabe, they broke that line between fiction and reality. And of course, there's a very famous example of this in 1996, uh, whereby there was a curtain call incident whereby several wrestlers got together and, um, showed that they, they that everything was fixed basically. Now, this brings me to the, uh, media incident last, uh, this, this past week with, uh, um, uh, Strachan, Allegro Strachan, uh, with, with regards to this press rehearsal. And when it was revealed, they were all embarrassed. But Allegra Strachan didn't resign because she was embarrassed about the fact that they'd locked down and they'd ignored all the lockdown rules. No, they she resigned purely because she'd effectively broken this line between fiction and reality. And the truth is, all journalists, all press pack journalists, were at the Christmas party, or most of them certainly were. Um, and they're only bringing this up now because they, they, they haven't forgiven Boris for Brexit. And I also think... Um, as I said, if, if the thing—if people think that the press conference earlier this week was bad—I would love to see some of the press conferences they had during the build-up to the Iraq War, where they were actually discussing bombing Iraq and, and Afghanistan, and uh, people's lives were on the line, British lives, civilian lives were on the line. You know, um, I'm sure they had very similar uh, uh, discussions back then. You know, the problem is here, uh, George, is that—and uh, of course, with, with with regards to Julian Assange, that's another question altogether. The man revealed this line between fiction and reality and he's been effectively persecuted for it, which is so unfair in every way. Um, I think that the biggest problem here, we can put guys like Boris Blair and Cameron Come and go all the time. It's the same in America. Guys like Trump, Bush, Obama, and currently Biden come and go all the time. But the biggest problem and the biggest enemy of the truth is journalism. Uh, the, the current, the current, uh, uh, what they call journalism. It's not journalism. Uh, the press pack journalism, as they call it, is the biggest enemy of democracy. Ever, you know, and it's it's, uh, well, I'm going to stop
2: you, Simon. And the reason I'm going to stop you is that is the best call not just of the night, but many a night. It is an absolutely brilliant observation uh, about that line uh, that uh, professional wrestlers must never cross of telling people that essentially it's all a game, it's all rigged. The metaphor was so perfect. I can't let you go on any further in case you spoil it, because it was just devastatingly brilliant. Thanks for making that call. Let's hear from Alison, also in London, but on Assange. Go ahead,
9: Alison. Good evening, George. Really? I was in the court on Friday and oh. uh, witnessed the absolute um, aberration of justice um, when uh, Holly Road uh, the Lord Chief Justice Ian Burnett was not present. He couldn't be present that day, um, Hollywood said. And when he said um, solemn diplomatic assurances, you wanted to guffaw out loud. Um, I reached the conclusion that now we're at, we are all Assange. It's a phrase that's really appropriate for us because we've rapidly lost all of our rights and the most fastest laws are being introduced um, to restrict our freedoms, um, the police crime incentive bill, and sentencing bill, etc. And Julian actually is a symbol for our lives now and we need to turn around and support him as much as we can you may be able to tell from my accent that i'm australian and i do a protest every wednesday at the australian high commission in the strand in london um what time months, what stress. time do you do it, alison i do it at three three to five p.m and often we doorstep george Brandis, who is a qc he was the attorney general of australia at one time and uh We often ask him and demand that he act to get Julian Assange released.
2: That's on a Wednesday
9: uh, between three and five. Three to five outside Australian High Commission in the Strand.
2: I hope people join you there. If I was in London, I'd do so myself. Uh, Let me take the opportunity to ask you, is this a big issue in Australia or are the Australians uh, laconically shrugging it all
9: off? It's become a very big issue. When John Shipton, Julian's father, had a, a roadshow tour to, uh, in Australia, people were coming out in the streets and, and throwing, giving him money um, to support Julian's case. Um, Aboriginal elders in Australia uh, gave um, Julian an Aboriginal passport and um, they are right behind him. There is a groundswell of support. The opposition party, the Labor Party, have said um, they will free Assange if they get into power. But forget that uh, Liberal, uh, which is a Conservative party in Australia, um, uh, are up for a elec- re-election in the next six months. So Very interesting. I'm grateful
2: there. to you for that, Alison. Good luck with your weekly picket. Mark is in Ayrshire. Go ahead, Mark.
5: Hi there. Uh, I was just uh, wondering if uh, you were given or came across any evidence that was say, untoward against uh, the USA Would you be willing to put it forward or not after what's happened to Julian Assange as a reporter?
2: You obviously don't know me, Mark, or you wouldn't need to ask that question. I would stand on this table and do it uh, in front of all these uh, cameras uh, because I'm afraid only of God, uh, the God that was ridiculed in an earlier communication. Uh, I'm not afraid of the United States or MI6 next door, or MI5 next door, or MI6 across the way, I'm not afraid of anybody. So if, uh, if I got uh, material that I believed in all conscience was in the public's interest to uh, reveal, I would reveal it.
5: Even with what's happened with uh, Julian yeah. Assange?
2: Absolutely. Without, without got- a moment's hesitation. I've unfortunately, been- Unfortunately, been- there are not many people in this profession Uh, that uh, would take that view, and what happens is, as I said earlier, quoting Francis Bacon, self-censorship is the arrow that flies in the night. You don't see it. You will never know it, Uh, but the journalist didn't say or didn't write what he could have said uh, or would have written uh, because he censored himself.
5: Well, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased to hear it because it's so many uh, journalists, they, they cower, they, they yeah. will cower away from... Cowards,
2: uh, that's where the word comes happens. from. Cowering, cowards. We've got cowards in the so-called fourth estate. We've got yes. cowards yes. in Parliament. We've got cowards on the opposition front bench. At a time when our country is in trouble and needs men and women of substance with courage... And convictions, we have none uh, of that. Mark, thanks uh, very much for that call. We've got to clear the lines because we've got a legend called Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma.
1: Hello, George. Um, just a few questions. Um, why do you think Boris had to give the announcement tonight? I mean, surely he could have given it tomorrow on a weekday. And you see, do you think he's on paternity leave? Because, um. He might not be in Parliament to answer the Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday. Do you think that? It's a
2: good question. Uh, I think the first part of the answer is virtually automatic it's distraction. Uh, They are desperate about footage and uh, WhatsApp messages that are still out there, which reveal their uh, absolute hypocrisy. Uh, last Christmas, uh, they realised that they have uh, they have lost a lot of political authority and power as a result of those revelations, and they're terrified of more. Uh, they've got a very difficult by-election coming up on yeah. Thursday, and so this was a distraction.
1: Yeah, well, Sunday night I heard Dominic Grieve speaking on a radio program, and um, my. God, he wasn't that strong against Boris. It was really um, I was amazed how strong he was. Well, he
2: was the champion of remain, of course. Yeah, uh, I know he He was the, uh, he was the main saboteur uh, of uh, Brexit, and he's one of those that has never forgiven Boris uh, for, no. for Brexit.
1: No. And the last thing, just on Julian Assange, I mean, I'm probably far too naive about this, but all this dreadful outcome at the courts. Do you think, well you don't, but why couldn't he be given um, bail, tags and sent home till the um, final outcome came? Exactly. Surely that
2: would be or, pain. Or, or given a tag and sent to, uh, to a health farm, uh, to a sanatorium. Uh, they, could, uh, they could post guards on the door. Why has he got to be kept in Belmarsh, yeah, which yeah. is for mass murderers, terrorists, Not for a guy who's on trial, or not even yet on trial, for having written words on a typewriter, words that were printed on the front pages of the biggest newspapers in the whole world. Norma, thanks. It's been marvellous for me. Hope it was for you. Come back next week, same time, same place. We asked you to help the podcast reach the magic number of 100 countries. I'm unusually proud of this, as you may be able to tell. And you answered the call. South Korea and Moldova took us over the hill with the Moats podcast now downloaded in 101 countries. Little old us in 101 countries. So if you're not already listening to this genuinely worldwide sensation then please subscribe so you can listen to moats anywhere anytime from every corner of the earth it's the distilled version of this show shorn of all the peripheral material just pure moats 90 minutes instead of three hours so if you do it and you love it please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and if you're a Spotify user, please follow us and let us see when the next record broken will be.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.